Well, welcome. The, uh, the best thing about the Christianity Explored class is that for seven weeks you will use a British accent and at the end of it, it just always sounds so smart. The British, I mean, you throw that onto anything and it, it's just good stuff. So we are, if you're new here, number one, thanks for being here. Uh, we are in a year-long series, a little bit different than what we would normally do. We're taking a year to go from the beginning to the end of the Bible and we're using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible. Uh, we encourage you to get one. If you can't, let us know. We want to get one for you. Um, I was told at the end of, the, of last service that a number of Bibles were left in the sanctuary and they didn't have names in them. So it's going to be really hard this year. If you don't put your name in the Bible, there's going to be like 50 other Bibles that look just like yours. So throw your name in the front. It's okay to write right in the, in the Bible. And that way you can find it when you accidentally leave it here at church. So we are... Coming out of week one, last week we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and we talked about some of the key realities of that text. That at the core of it, it's about the creator God. It's about the beginning of the story of God. That it talks about man and woman being made in the image of God. That they are supposed to reflect who God is to each other and to the creation around them. It's about community. I love this quote by Thomas Merton. He said this, he said, love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of life by ourselves we find it with one another. And one of the keys of Genesis 1 and 2 is it's about community. Creation happened because God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that love flowed out into creation. And then as creation happens, it's all about community amongst the one another there. So this morning... <laughs> We are going to jump into Genesis 3. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis 3 is often called the chapter about the fall. So we're going to talk just about sin this morning. Uh, first thing, if you can take a piece of paper, write down your top five sins and share it with the person next to you. Preferably someone you don't know. We want to make church as uncomfortable as possible. It's Genesis 3. I've got to add a little levity here and there. It's a, it's a beautiful passage. <coughs> Excuse me. But it is one of those passages that I think in general, whether you've read it before or heard about it, people often read it as the story about them. This is about Adam and Eve. This is about another thing. It's not about me. Theologian named N.T. Wright wrote a book right after 9-11 called Evil and the Justice of God. And he talks at the beginning of the book and he says this. He says, generally people act in very immature ways around the issue of evil. We think of it as something out there, we, we, we point the finger with blame, we have our pithy little answers as to why evil exists. And he said, none of those get to the core problem of, uh, of evil. The core problem of evil is this, the very line of evil that we see out there in them runs through every one of us. And that's the core point of Genesis 3. That the very evil that we see out there on the news, wherever it might be, is actually the evil that is inside all of us. And that's how the early readers would have read Genesis 3. When they read Genesis 3, they lived at a time where brokenness and sin and evil existed. And so they read it, understanding this is our understanding of how this came to be, of how the fall happened, and that's how we read it today. So before we jump into Genesis 3, let me pray. Father, this is such an important part of your story. And in turn, for all who trust you, our story, God. But it's hard to talk about. So I pray, Lord, that you'd give us grace 
that you would give us clarity. And God, I pray that we would, um, through your spirit, take ownership where, where, for where we rebel against you. And know that life and hope and forgiveness is always what you move towards us with. Praise the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Uh, we're going to read down through it, and as usual, I'll sort of make some commentary as we go along, and then at the end, we'll, we'll talk about what, what at the very, very center of this text, what it's about. But let's read down through it first. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And you can begin to sort of picture the interaction that's going here. Of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, listen to this. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. I don't know if you notice, she, she adds on to what God commanded. Eve is basically the first legalist in scripture. That God said, don't eat it. What did she add to it? Don't even touch it. So somehow her understanding of who God is is starting to be di distorted. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, well, I regarded God as a tyrant. I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I fought it. I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. And Eve is stepping into that. Her understanding of who God is is starting to be distorted from the good and loving God to something different. And she begins to add on commands to the law that God had given. Verse four, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God knowing. And, 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 and this passage is very much about the idea of knowledge and wisdom. It sort of is the temptation that comes towards them, knowing both good and evil. Verse six, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. There's the temptation. Temptation is not just the fruit. The temptation is what the fruit is going to give her. So she took, the, took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And we got to stop for a second because it's by eating the fruit that this human couple is essentially saying we know better than God. And that is going to get to the core of what this passage is all about. That we know better than God. The word, the Hebrew word for knowledge is actually about experience. And so by eating the fruit, they are experiencing evil separating their judgment, their moral judgment from God's. It's in the act of eating this fruit that a wall, a barrier is now put between them and God. That is the idea of death. At this moment, judgment, death enters in the promise of what God had given them if they ate of it. At the moment, their eyes were open. And listen to some of the words here. At the, the moment their eyes were open, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Chapter two ended saying they were naked and they felt no shame. Now they're naked and they feel shame. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. 
some intriguing imagery here. Of like, that's what we do, right? When we sin and rebel against God, what is our first act? Cover up. What's my story? Verse eight. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Verse 10, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid, I was afraid because I was naked. It's intriguing that I was afraid. It's the same answer that Abraham gives in chapter 20. It's the same answer Isaac gives in chapter 26 of Genesis. Their guilt is obvious. Their guilt is obvious by the words they use. Think about them. I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid, I ate. Verse 11. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree? Or have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And then this is so good. The man replied, guys, we're idiots. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And it's just the, the blame game here gets so good. Like, and, and that's basically been the problem of man since, right? We keep blaming the woman as though it's not our fault. Verse 13, then the Lord God asked the woman, what, what have you done? She blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me. She replied, that is why I ate. And it's, you got to understand, at the end of verse 14, judgment has happened. At this point, judgment has happened. Death has entered in. We see in this interaction between God and Adam and Eve, we see that exactly what God said would happen has now happened. Their relationship with God is broken and distorted and fractured. The relationship amongst each other is broken and distorted and fractured. And so what comes now through the end of the chapter is the statement about reality. Because you sinned, and now because death has entered, here's what things are going to look like. Here, here's where the struggle is going to be. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And if you know much of the New Testament, that's the exact same language of Jesus dying on the cross. What happens? That he crushes the head of the serpent. In his death and resurrection, life, God wins at the end of the day. Let's keep reading in verse 16. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And think about this for a second. The, the mutuality that we talked about last week in chapter two, where man and woman were together, relating to God, relating to each other, caring for God's creation. It was good. It was a mutual relationship. And now the statement on reality, because sin has entered in and because death is now present, is your relationship will essentially be a power struggle for all of time. And if we're really honest, any of you who are, are married, you understand that that is, is on some level one of the base challenges we have in marriage. It's the power struggle. And so God makes a statement that this is going to be it. 
It's not that it can't get better. We know that redemptively, you think of the pain of childbirth, how it was when this happened and how it is now is a little better, right? They didn't have some of the drugs that you women are able to have now. Things have improved a little bit. But God is making a statement because death has entered in, because you sinned, these are going to be some of the challenges that you enter into. To the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. You will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. Marriage, relationships, birth, labor. Not everybody for all of time is going to be a farmer, but it's going to be different. You're going to care for God's creation in a different way. It's going to be more challenging. And again, redemptively, this, this looks a little different. For the handful of you that are even in this room and you are farmers, it, it's not quite as bad as said here, right? But we know the challenge is still the challenge. That in chapters 1 and 2, when they were tending and caring for the garden, it was good. And now work is not quite what it was intended to be. Verse 20. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she'd be the mother of all who live. In verse 21, circle, underline this. this I, I think in chapter 3, as much as it's about the fall, as much as it seems heavy, it's full of grace. It's full of the grace of God. But it's probably most clear in verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. You've sinned. You've rebelled. You feel shame. And I will move towards you with grace and help the interaction between the two of you become better. Then verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life? We talked about the tree of life last week. That's referred to also in Revelation and eat it. Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. For those who originally read this text and for us, Genesis 3 is about sin and temptation. It is completely about our sin and our temptation. If you think about the idea of temptation in Genesis 3 and what temptation is for us, is temptation is the surface. Temptation is where we are tempted to lust, we're tempted with greed, we're tempted with self-pity or defensiveness or gossip. And the temptation, that, that, that fruit, and maybe what the fruit represents... What we tend to think when we're giving into it is that thing will provide us the meaning that we are created for. And what we always find out, I believe with all that I am, what we always find out when we fall to that temptation, we yield to it, it never satisfies. It never, never satisfies. I think if you look at Genesis 3, the core sin the core sin of this chapter is unbelief. It's unbelief. It's not the fruit. 
It's not just about knowledge and wisdom. It's Adam and Eve not believing that the world that God had created for them, the relationship that they had amongst each other, what they were called to do, it's Adam and Eve believing that God's good world was not good enough. And that somehow when they placed their faith in themselves, that they now could become better rulers than God was. That their wisdom was better than God. It's unbelief. C.S. Lewis, and this is a little bit of a long, long reading, but it's fabulous, says this. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And listen, in Christ... Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. We said in week one that what we're going to find throughout the Old Testament is always points us towards Jesus Christ. And a conversation about temptation points us directly to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, come to live among us, come to walk among us. Same imagery as Genesis 3. That God comes again to walk among his creation. And the New Testament says that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet didn't give in. And so as we talk about temptation, as we think about our unbelief, it drives us directly towards Jesus Christ, the one who faced temptation and didn't sin. And our only hope as fallen and broken people is to fully believe and trust the one who was tempted and didn't sin. Martin Luther says this. He says, all sin is ultimately unbelief. Ultimately unbelief. All sin is ultimately unbelief. In his commentary on Romans, he says this. Only unbelief is called sin by Christ. As he says in John 16, the spirit will punish the world because of its sin, because it does not believe in me. Furthermore, before good or bad works happen, which are the good or bad fruits of the heart, there has to be present in the heart either faith or unbelief, the root, sap, and chief power of all sin. That is why in the scriptures, unbelief is called the head of the serpent, which the offspring of the woman, that is Christ, must crush, as was promised to Adam in Genesis 3. The sin of unbelief in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve yielded into, it's our sin as well. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, your sin is unbelief. That sounds hard, I know. But for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we also know that day in, day out, my chief sin is unbelief. Believing that I could better rule my life and God's world than God actually could. It's the sin of unbelief. Romans 5 promises this. 
starting in verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Moses, from the time of Adam to the time of Mo- Moses, even those who did not obey the explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater, I'm to underline that even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sins of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. Live and triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. It's the sin of unbelief. The temptation is always the surface, whatever it is, but at its core, it's the sin of unbelief, our thinking that we can do it better. Tolian Chavidian, Billy Graham's grandson, says this. He says, failing to believe the gospel leads to slavery because now finding peace, joy, meaning, and satisfaction's up to me. I'm on my own. This is why we give in to temptation. We're desperately looking under every rock and behind every tree, searching for something to make ourselves happy, something to save us, something to set us free. And we'll never find it until we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The only one that can give us the meaning we're looking for. Like the father of the boy with the unclean spirit in Mark 9, I pray that we would cry out daily, I believe help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. God, Genesis 3 is our story. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God, for anyone in this room who has not put their faith in a loving God that came and died and rose again, God, I pray that they would do that. And then for all of us on the journey of following you, God, we pray, we believe, help our unbelief. Right now, this afternoon, this evening, on Tuesday morning, on Friday afternoon, we believe, help our unbelief. Pray this your name and to your glory. Amen. We want to do something a little different as we close things out um, this morning. Genesis 1 and 2. In God's good creation, it sort of has three levels to it. That man and woman actually get to walk with God. Things are good and beautiful. God talks with them. The relationship between man and woman is really good too. 
Community is what it's supposed to be. Whatever that means, however it looked, it's good. And then they were caring for God's good creation with God. Things were right. And we read Genesis 3 and we know that that story is the brokenness in each one of us. And the line, I believe, help my unbelief. It's our journey with God, right? It's our journey with each other. And it's our journey on our calling in this world. And so we want to give you a time of confession this morning. In many traditions, this happens every time the gathered community comes together, that there's a time of repenting and receiving the forgiveness of God. How we're going to do it is I'm going to read a prayer for us. And then there'll be a time where Steve and Jill will play and sing. And we just want you to close your eyes, take that in, and just confess and receive the promise of forgiveness from God. So we'll do that in three movements. And our prayer is it just provides you a space to not only confess, but to know that God comes at you in grace and love and forgiveness. Let me pray for us. We believe in you, God. Help our unbelief. Our unbelief that you are actually a good and loving God. Help our unbelief that you would forgive us for all the ways we give in to temptations around us. How we trade trust in you for belief in ourselves and our wisdom. When we are tempted to trust our knowledge in our ways, we pray for the faith to trust your ways and your kingdom. with you to become distorted but we do the same with each other help us to believe in one another help us to live out your way in our relationships the way of love of forgiveness of healing and belief
We believe in you, God. Help our unbelief. Our unbelief breaks our relationship with you, with one another, and with your good creation. Give us the ability to believe that you want to restore all things. We pray this by saying the words that you taught. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.